you give us even more strength and goodness from these, from these verses. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, for the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. <clears throat> then they will deliver you up to tribulation, you, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Thus far, reading in God's holy and inerrant, infallible word. Our flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, its flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you. By God's help, will be preached. Please have a seat. You've no doubt heard the axiom, uh, the race goes not to the swift. And that is correct. The Proverbs say it this way. The precious possession of a man is perseverance. It's one thing to start. But as Solomon uh, has admitted in his sage advice, the conclusion of the matter is better than the start of a matter, the beginning of a matter. It's much better to conclude a matter successfully. And here lies all the hope of the saint. The saint begins his life in faith, hope, and love. But it is only the saint that endures through many trials, through many great trials, through many great difficulties, in love, faith, and hope to the end. We are preserved in the power of God unto a salvation already, already set for us and to be revealed in the last time. But as Christ warns his churches in Asia Minor, when he's bringing out great defects, great blemishes, great lapses of love to him, great lapses of faith, great, great uh, omission of, of the very purpose of the church in being a light in a dark place. He says, you know, to him who overcomes, 
will I give him the crown of life and a, a name that is better than sons. This passage is about perseverance. Now look, I am intentionally avoiding lots of maps and charts. You can have maps and charts. I'm not condemning all that. You can do all that as long as those maps and charts help you to see the main forest for the trees. But if you get lost in the trees, buddy, you're not going to come out. You're going to be eating bark and mushrooms you know, for a long time. We need to get through the woods. We need to persevere through this teaching rightly. And then you can study all the ancillary teachings. The most important thing is keeping faith, keeping the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be provided for you. Miss that, nothing will be provided for you. And that's why I'm taking this tack. All right, the proposition for this morning. Jesus teaches his disciples at the end of this age, will feature great trials so that many will be deceived and fall away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he who perseveres with Christ to the end will be saved. Let me repeat it. Jesus teaches his disciples. Again, this is not a, a teaching for the multitudes. He's no longer in the temple area. He's left that area. He's now sitting in the Mount of Olives. His friends come to us. This is a private teaching. He's teaching his disciples. But the end of this age will feature great trials so that many will be deceived and fall away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he who perseveres with Christ to the end, that one, and that one alone, will be saved. We have what? How many, how many points in the sermon? Two, sermon? two points, but they're long. Here we go. The last days, and we're in the last days, ever since Christ died, rose, resurrected, the age is winding down. But the last days will feature great temptations, trials, and tribulations on earth. And not in, it just in Jesus' day. Uh, I'm already revealing my, uh, my hand as to what I think this chapter is about. It's not about the, just, you know, narrowly the, the first 70 or 40 years concluding the speech here on the Mount of Olives to, to his disciples. And not just in Jesus' day, but throughout the entire church age. The apostles are given charge of teaching the church, not one another. And there's certainly the church uh, in Jerusalem up to the A.D. 70 is not the whole church. The whole church needs this, and that's why it's inscripturated for us. Otherwise, it's just a bit of interesting history and has no relevance to the perfecting of the saints. Great temptations, great uh, trials, and we're going to see some of these temptations and trials. First of all, the first temptation here is one uh, regarding religious uh, divisions, sects, and uh, heresies. I don't want to get too technical with these definitions. Um, let it be sufficient to say that there is but one church on earth. There's one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism that avails. And uh, that is the bride of Christ. And to her is owed all the scriptures, all the teaching of scripture, all the testimony of Christ. All gifts are hers and all graces are hers. And she is the only one that will not fail but will persevere. But in the vicinity of that bride, and uh, as far as her, her expressing herself in a visible community, the church, the visible kingdom of God, there will be many who will uh, border on her skirts, you might say, or even in her fold that are false. False Christ will deceive, and they will deceive many, despite the helper, the Holy Spirit, as we promised, that Christ promises uh, John 17, 
those that are deceived will not avail of the promise of the Holy Spirit. They will not avail of the help of God, the third person of Trinity. They will not see the truth of the scriptures as with the light of God's own light and the, the brightness of his, of his smile as an adopted son in his house. They will fail and they will be led astray by false saviors. Many blasphemous, many heretical groups, they all like to downplay this. I'll just, I'll just call one to attention, the Shaker Town. I love that place. It's a great, you, know, you want to be in Kentucky, you want to go uh, down there to Pleasant, uh, Pleasant Hill and see marvelous architecture and, and well-groomed gardens. I mean, the, the kitchen and restaurant is great. It's a fanatically dangerous, utopian sect. People flock there, and it's not, you know, it's not touted as something that's deadly to the soul. And we even have you know, Christians playing uh, the Shaker song of dance and all that stuff. And it's a lot of fun, you know. It's deadly. The leader thought, declared herself a messiah for crying out loud. It's a loathsome tech. And people just don't seem to be aware of how very dangerous all these religious sects and heresies are. Again, there's only one bride, and that's the church of Christ on earth. But these many false Christs are, are, are sent really for two, two, for two main reasons. One is the punishment of all those that already blasphemed and hate God, and God is delivering them to something that they love. Just like Pharaoh, the Lord would harden Pharaoh's heart. How? By causing him to sin? No. By giving Pharaoh over to more of Pharaoh. And he gives sinners over to more of their own hearts. And that's where they grow worse and worse. And, uh, and that's God's punishment. The punishment upon God on, on Pleasant Hill is not, is not the beetle eating their cucumbers. The punishment of God on that false sect of the Shakers is because of their preposterous idolatry and blasphemy. Spiritual punishment is much worse, my friends, than physical punishment. Would that tornadoes would come and ruin Shakerville, Shakertown, rather than this strand of being given over to this kind of spiritual darkness. Sent by God for the punishment of some, and that's the first condition. The second condition, for the trial of others. Because just as God is glorified and is absolute sovereign and justice and hardening some, he is also glorified by strengthening the, heart, the, the, the saints, not by the removal of conflict. My friends, we pray a lot for the removal of disease. We pray a lot for the removal of bad you know, leaders in our nation, wars. The majority of the work in this life is by God strengthening the church through all manner of difficulty. And if he gives us peaceful, if he gives us halcyon days, hey, give thanks. You know, just throw a banquet with the Indians. For, you know, that's, that's great. We have a season of prosperity. We have a season of peace. Relish. That's an anomaly, an anomaly, not normal. Trial. Consider it all joy when you find yourself in all manner of trial, says James 1. For this is for the strengthening of your faith and character. And, and perseverance develops character. And, 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 that, and that's what God is after. God is after. He's not, he's not making you uh, 
a little coddled baby that's going to be given an inheritance. He's, he's, he's out to make each of you, even the youngest of you, to sculpt you into a warrior Christian, a, a, a towering Elijah, a testimony, a monument of his grace and his truth. And only trials can do that for you. So if you have a habit of complaining to God during trial, just remember that was the test in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10. They grumbled, they murmured, they murmured, they mostly murmured against Moses, you know, but really Moses was there by God's appointment, not Moses' own. He didn't want the job. And they all felt like flies. God's displeasure. Religious sex and heresies, temptation. If you reject Christ or any of his truth, most of you say, well, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not here to reject Christ. No, but you can't be selective in when to obey him and when not to obey him. You need to have universal obedience, and you are to relish all of his promises to us in the gospel and remember them and make them yours and rest in them and, and glory in God for it. But if you do reject Christ, just remember this. That you may not feel the shame of it economically. You may not feel the shame of it socially. You may have more friends than ever before. Your health will be brilliant. Maybe. Maybe. But if you reject Christ, you will accept anybody or anything as a savior. And that's where idolatry comes in. That's the danger. That's the danger. That's where John concludes his epistle. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the nature of the thing. You got God, fellowship with him, otherwise you default into idols. First temptation was religious sex and heresy. Second temptation, the terror of war. Religion will be blamed as being overly scrupulous and narrow. How stupid are these Christians? Don't they know that they have become an abominable stench everywhere they go, insisting on absolute truth? And scrupulosity, or I should say accuracy. I mean, when you're going to the moon, you, what, you're, what you're looking for is 12-digit accuracy in your supercomputers. When you're going to heaven, which is beyond the moon, no one seems to care about accuracy. What is this? Why this detestation of being accurate in Scripture? Puritans are, 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 are shamed because they, they serve an exacting God, a scientific God who parses out truth even in his verbs. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unbelievable. Overly narrow, scrupulous religions will be blamed as the cause of wars. You know different. The cause of wars is your own heart, my friends. You must then keep your heart from war. Your main job in, as, as, in life is to be still and to know that God is your God, that he will be exalted among the nations, that he'll be exalted in you. And if you leave your peace, all you're going to do is rankle people, starting with your own self and then your home, starting then with your neighbors and your church, and you'll be a source of contention. You can't keep quiet. You can't keep the peace and the order in the, in the church. You have to have your way. You must keep your heart at peace. You must keep your heart at peace at war. Now, that's difficult, my friends, because at war, many things are lost at war. Many things that you hold dear and 
have treasured all your life. Many things that you have worked hard and fairly have purchased for yourself. Relations, families, children are taken away and enslaved. Women, I won't mention what happens. All of this worry says, I think it's Psalm 5, cease to worry. It only leads to evil doing. It only leads to evil doing. That's the main trial. The trial during wars and rumors of wars is the keeping of the heart at peace and contentedness with God, keeping faith. You're doing that, you're absolutely secure. You drop out of worship, you, you, you get angry at churches for their COVID, for their COVID stance, you get angry at, at churches because their music is rotten, you get angry at churches because they're not feeding you enough food. All right, that's war in your heart ever before nations go to war. The main topic is, though, it starts with individual hearts and then groups and then nations and then nations mount up against nations and then there's wars. Now, these wars are all predetermined. They're decreed. They're certain. But Jesus is saying that this is not the end. Now, it may be the end of you if you succumb to the temptation, but it's not the end of the war. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is not the end of, uh, of the age. This is not the, the foreshadowing. This is only a, a far, a distant foreshadowing of his second coming and not the actual, uh, he's not at the porch, he's not at the door. It's not the end. It's not even close. This is God's punishment on the nations uh, for sin. But if you will study the history, especially of the Western nations, well, no, no, all nations, why well, pick on the West? If you'll study, but more, but more importantly, if you study the Western church history, you'll see where the church has gone wrong expressly because it's all been annotated in church councils and things like that, and you'll see that the turning point mostly is in idolatry, is in uh, the worship of other, other things or other people, other saints in the sanctuary, uh, the worship of God in, in ways that are not uh, given for us to be worshiping in images and things like that, and then the renouncing of the name of Christ, ultimately covenant breaking. God's, that, that, that really sets... Uh, the nations at, at, as against Christ, uh, against the Lord, and against his anointed. But even these punishments are, are for the rooting out and establishing of, uh, uh, and the destruction of idolatry. Uh, the Lord sends great punishments on nations when nations abuse the gospel, when they conflict the gospel, when they twist the gospel, when they... Uh, dismiss the gospel when they are cruel to the messengers. Uh, this is exactly what's going on in the biblical history in Jerusalem right now in, in this preaching. If you study, uh, for instance, uh, the Protestant Re Reformation, I'll just give you one place, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. All right? There was a peace that was struck at Nantes. The Protestants could live. The Huguenots could, could live nicely. There were Protestants. Hundreds and hundreds of Protestant churches dotted all of France. That's revoked. What happens? Well, yeah, persecution, but then the Enlightenment and then the terror of the French Revolution. And that was a bloody, bloody bloodbath. France has never recovered, really. Not spiritually, not spiritually. There's a remnant. Read history. The abuse of the gospel, the, the, abuse, the, 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 the abuse of his messengers. Calvin fled from Paris because already uh, the devastation of the 
St. Bartholomew's Day was upon the reformers. He was, a, he was in the sink. He was not, not a leader yet, but he was, a, he was in with the mix. And so he fled. Uh, the abuse of the gospel, the abuse of its messengers. Wars and rumors of wars are only the beginning of sorrow, says the scripture. See, don't, don't be shaken up. It, it, surely, it surely does appear that it's going to be the end of your world. You may perish in these wars, of many, many faithful Christians have. But it's not the end. It's not his coming. There's, there's something else that, is, that awaits that. Now, when you persevere through a trial, it's by God's help. I don't know what he has for you. But you're in a position to be stronger than before, especially if you have really, by his grace, stood your ground as an example and can give further testimony and, and there's further help for you. There's further work for you. You, 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 you are a, a, a finely hewn threshing machine. I think it's Isaiah that says that. You're ready to, now to plow through fields, not only fields, but mountains. So you need to prepare yourself for the next trial. Because, only, because God usually prepares you and makes you fitter and stronger now that you can sit down and lounge. God prepares you through trial to make you fitter and stronger that you might lift heavier boulders. And nothing but spiritual battle should be counted on in this life. Widow indeed, who are a widow that are about prayer and have thrown themselves in the mercy of God, those are true widows, widows indeed. But those who have inherited vast sums of money and spend the world, that their last days just eating, drinking, cruising the world and gossiping, the living widow is dead already. You persevere through trial. You prepare for the next trial. Nothing but spiritual battle for Christian in this life. If he gives you halcyon days, bless the Lord. If he gives you what he gives most Christians throughout all of church history, bless the Lord. The third temptation, religious persecution. You need to resolve... This is not your own life. You've died. Your life is hid with Christ in the heavenly places. When you became a Christian, you forfeited this life. You've lost your name, and it's been absorbed into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he gives it back to you. The Lord's very gracious. He's not going to annihilate your personality. In forging you into a, a military soldier, he's given you more of your personality than he made you by creation, by natural creation. He wants you to be uniquely you, but in his strength. And that's just one of the mysteries of the gospel. The holiest men are most themselves, and they're most comfortable in themselves uh, being what God has made them. But I am what I am by the grace of God, says Paul. That's what I mean by that. Not self-esteem gospel. Don't, don't, leave the, don't leave the preaching yet, okay? Resolve. Your life is not your own. You forfeited this life to regain it in Christ. It'll be made over anew in a new creation, the start of which is the Holy Spirit now. Do you expect to be loved and admired as a Christian in this world? Is that what you want to do? Make friends and influence people? You, you, need to be, you need to make sure that you get this message from Jesus and not from one of the false prophets. There's plenty of them. They live in, sometimes in, in enormously gorgeous cathedrals and enormously gorgeous temples. You need to resolve that there, there will be religious persecution. There always has been. There always will be because it's the war of the seeds, remember? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
The two are completely antagonistic. There's no reconciliation. Jacob and Isaac from the womb, kicking each other in the teeth. But they didn't have teeth, they had gums. Kicking each other in the gums, you know. No place to go. No, no, no place to flee on earth, as all nations will hate the true Christian disciple. And this is what Jesus is teaching. This is where the church needs to be a sanctuary. This is where the church needs to be an emblem of the peaceable and eternal kingdom of God. And we will not tolerate disorder. We will not tolerate hatred, envy, jealousy, and gossip, and the bringing down of character. We will not tolerate error. This is the kingdom of God, not of anybody, not the PCA. The fourth temptation is apostasy, or to say a falling away of, from the faith. To apostatize means to depart. It's akin to the word apostle. The apostles are sent, so they depart from one place to another. Apostasy is when someone reclines, not to Jesus, but to the world. He falls away. He falls away from professing Christ. Why? Well, for the reason that if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see when it gets hot for Hebrew believers, when it got hot for the Hebrews in the wilderness of sin, they began to recall the cucumbers and the leeks. Well, wasn't that better under, in Egypt? Uh, were there not graves sufficient in Egypt that you should come and bring us out here that we'd be buried, Moses? Falling away from, the professing, uh, from professing Christ because the trial is severe. And many will do even worse things and they will actually strike a covenant with Satan. And if you don't think witchcraft... As any or sorcery is a lie, well, you need to stick your head out the window of your, of your house every once in a while. That's what people do when they when they have no power against God's uh, God's fury, and they sense that they uh, are undone. They will they will get help from anybody, and they will align with anybody, including the most vile, Satan himself, apostasy, other professing Christians. When, when, when Christians see other Christians purportedly of good reputation, of stature in the church, when they see these falling away and making rotten choices and declining to own Christ, they are scandalized. They're scandalized by the hypocrisy of apostates, pretending that there is some righteousness that, there's, that is there besides the free righteousness, the gospel righteousness of Christ. And this is a severe trial, especially to young Christians. I thought you preached that once you were saved, you were always saved. I thought you, you believed in the perseverance of the saints. And here you are, back in the dregs. Now you're with the wallowing in the mire with the pigs. What's, what is all this? A stumbling block, Matthew 18. Better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths. Apostates are your chief enemies in the church. Apostates are the, your chief enemy in the church. If they don't undermine uh, uh, your faith, they pose, they, they pose a real threat to the faith of your children and to the weak ones. And for that reason, hate will increase between brothers and brothers in the church. They become suspicious of one another. And, and that will deaden the love of many. And when the church has no love, what kind of church is that? 
The very bonds of peace in Christ and the Holy Spirit are love. It's time to wrap it up when the church has no love. You're done. You don't have any sanctuary. You have succumbed. The lampstand is out of oil. Apostasy. God judges individuals. God judges apostates. God judges churches that apostatize. Beware. The fifth temptation, false teachers akin to religious sects and heresies. Uh, two, two types especially. Those who are legalists, they want to return back to Jerusalem, already sunk and burned. But there are those who so despise being legalists that they are actually antinomians, and these are lawless persons. Those are the two extremes. Both poles are abominable. Both, both poles are ungodly. Both poles condemn. All right? Hypocrites, provocateurs, you know, uh, people that they just love to be in public, always stirring up some kind of mix of trouble. Narcissists, they always need to be, they need to always have a, a camera, a blog, whatever. Egotists. You see their names placated everywhere. They don't, you don't, they don't mention Christ so much. The glory of, of, the, of, the, of the redemption, the finality of the reconciliation, the, the, the greatness of, of God substituting a lamb in their place. All their boast is in their ministry and how rotten, and you fill in the blank. Those rotten, blank, blank, blank. And you just go ahead and fill in the blanks. There's always somebody outside that he's not preaching to because his inter if he ever starts correcting his own people, his disciples will leave him, but he's always throwing grenades, lofty grenades, at those rotten, and you'd fill in the gap. You've just filled in the blank. They preach themselves, not Christ. And especially those who, who love to conflate the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There's two covenants that govern all of mankind, either by works. If you do this, you live. That was a covenant with Adam. That being broken, all Adam and all, and Adam died as the, the federal head of that covenant. There's a covenant of works and there's a covenant of grace. You keep those things as far apart as you can in terms of our justification, your standing, and in any boast at all, any boasting at all in your wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, you must go to this pole, the covenant of grace in Christ, and let no one confuse you as having mixed the two. And you mix those two, and most Christians, we all need better scrutiny. We all need better accuracy is what we mean by the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. But if you are mixed up in that, you have forgotten that the gospel has only one boast, and that is in Christ all the day long. Any boasting in the flesh is only done, as the Apostle Paul does, to show his insanity. He says, I speak as a madman. More persecutions. Baptist, you know, circumcised on the eighth day in the tribe of Benjamin. I, you know, he tells the Corinthians, I speak like a fool. Yeah, because fools are condemned in boasting in the day of the gospel. You better find out whether it's going to be Christ's faithfulness that saves you or your own faithfulness that saves you. You better find out. You mix these two covenants, you're doomed. Many will be deceived. False doctrine is more dangerous than, than sword, fire, plague. Everybody's worried about COVID, you know, whatever. Not anymore so much. 
evil. The evil of eagles is sin. Sin is the evil of eagles. It's blinding. It's weakening. It, it, it is, it is uh, it absolutely decays all your strength, takes away all your strength, moral strength and physical strength. It's Satan, the agent who weaks, weakens the nations through error. But many will be deceived. False doctrine is more dangerous, kills more souls than fire and sword. And so and that's your next retort. Oh, religious wars, that's all we've had. No, there are more people probably in hell now as a result of, of a false peace between uh, false religions than ever there was when there were religious wars. The sixth temptation, my friend, is love gone cold. The godly become suspicious of one another, even in the church. They become envious, jealous, uncaring, unfeeling. When evil abounds, love diminishes in the home, at work, the nation, the church, and the world. And then, the worst part is, there's no sanctuary at all. The psalmist said it this way, when the foundations are destroyed, what then will the righteous do when there's no place for a, a footing in the world? The worst trial of all, no sanctuary in the world. A loveless church is almost unbearable. And of course, many professing, those professing outwardly to be Christian would drop, would be dropping out. They, they don't expect to come to church and be persecuted. But you know what? John Gerster hung in there with a lot of persecutors in the Northern Presbyterian Church. I'll call his name out as a, as a man who is steadfast. That's, you don't know John, Dr. John Gerster? He was the mentor to R.C. Sproul. Sproul said, if I had stopped everything what I was doing and studied for 40 years, I would not attain to the knowledge or the character or the piety of, of John Gerstner. And I said at one of his Ligonier conferences, he remained in the church, though they were very spiteful to him and mocked him for believing in such simple things as the virgin birth and the creation of the world. All right. This is where the Lord's table is a, is a trial. You need to examine yourself to see if you're worthy of the title Christian. If not, you profane a holy thing. You're talking about communion. That is to say, peace, reconciliation with God and you, but then also in the body. And if that's not the picture, please don't ruin the picture. Don't, don't profane the picture. I will always be, if I, as long as I'm your pastor here, I will insist on that application. Let no one detest that admonition. The second point of the sermon, very long, I know. A believer who believes, who perseveres in his faith, if the believer perseveres in faith, hope, and love to the end, that believer is the one that will be saved. That's the one that will be saved, and no one else. That's the only kind of believer that will be saved. Jesus prophesies, and here he warns you, lest you be deceived. The, pro, the, the, the danger is not earthquake and famine and wars. It's, it's deception. Jesus' warning is not hypothetical. So, well, you know, now that I'm a Calvinist, ha, I got that. Okay, scratch that concern off. I, you know, check that box. Jesus' warning must not be explained away by bad theology. Sleepy virgins? That's coming up next chapter. The sleepy virgins have checked off. Oh, yeah, the, we're, yeah we got every emblem. Why, we, we even have oil in our lamps. Uh -uh. 
Jesus prophesies here to prepare you, lest you grow careless and fall away. And look, it's not, it's, it's not you're mapping out. It's, this is not an exorcism. Oh, excuse me, it is an exorcism. It's not an exercise in Gnosticism. You see where I got those two words conflated there. It's not a, a mere knowledge of the end times that will save you. A lot of people say, well, look, I got this, you know, here's the way it's going to be. And if you don't believe like I do, if you don't believe in a, a mid-tribulation, mid whatever, I'm out of here. We can't, have, we can't have fellowship. The terms of communion in those churches are ridiculous. Jesus prophesies to prepare you lest you grow careless, and that's the issue. It is the constancy of your faith in the Lord Jesus to the end. And it makes sense because if you have union with him in the Holy Spirit, that bond it is, it is unbreakable. You're held by the power of God under salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's by grace of the almighty God. And it does not pertain to a lowly creature, no matter how sinful he is, to break that bond. And by God's good grace, he's promised that if his sons disobey, that they will taste his discipline, but he will never remove his steadfast love from those that he has graced with his spirit. Whoever then fails these trials and falls away from, uh, from uh, whoever fails these trials and falls away from faith and hope and love cannot be saved unless he, unless he returns. And I, I think there's plenty of space in our theology to say that we can be hopeful that one will return, although I will admit from what I read that it's a rare thing. And the more faith and the more hope and the more love that you fall away from, uh, I should say, I should qualify that, apparent faith, apparent hope, apparent love. The difficult is, the more difficult it is to restore you. The promise of salvation is to who is to him who believes not for a time, but for, but but to the race, to the race, to the, the conclusion of the race. Uh, I'll just review the parable of the sower. Jesus is very explicit there. Review that. Recall the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Those are not those are not written to uh, anyone but Christians. The warnings there are real and not hypothetical. The saints hear it and they, they fear God, they reverence God, they turn, they repent, they, they, they are contrite, they confess sin. But if you fall away entirely, then you were never justified really in your faith. You never came to rest in Christ. You did not die with Christ. You, did not, you were not raised with Christ. And John says that, you know, they were of us. They were, they were in our number, but they, they, they were among us, but they left us. But their leaving was only to demonstrate that they were truly not of us. 1 John 2 and verse 19. And thus every believer must strive against every form, every kind of sin universally, every kind of temptation. They must persevere through trial, welcoming it, as James says, count it all joy, beloved, when various trials and temptations meet you. Okay? The priority then is to seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. If you persevere through small trials, you have the hope of persevering through large trials. But as a friend of mine once said, Lou, can you imagine what's up against us? We who, if we are hammering in the garage and we strike our thumbnail with a hammer, what kind of expletives are we bound to say? And if we can't take that little, that little mishap, who, how, who of us will, will endure 
the systematic, planned, and exquisitely painful torture of the enemies of the gospel once they break out. You need to prepare yourself for the day of trouble. There are seasons, and there are seasons. And if we're not under persecution now, this is a season to get strong. And this is not a season to be frolicking in one's false paradise. But if you do find yourself resilient against temptation, even in the least, if you do manage to regain your balance after a, a fall of sin, well, then count it all joy. The Lord has not deserted you. He's, he, the, the righteous falls seven times and the Lord brings them up. Are you then overcoming sin and temptation daily through faith? Are you returning? Do you love the word repentance? Can you see new obedience? As you're, as you're now, say you're now you're attending the, the teaching on Exodus. We're going through the moral law. You're seeing now that, that God's instruction is very, very deep and very broad. And there's all manner of new obedience that you haven't considered. Sins of omission that you're now ready to confess. But you hadn't even thought of confessing before. You, they, were not, they were not even in your sight. But you're now serious. And you're going to pursue God with full resolve to perfect holiness until his return. Are you then seeing new obedience? Are you in the spirit putting to death the deeds of the body? The Lord himself guarantees that if that's the case, you will live. Romans 8 and verse 13. But are you being overcome by the flesh, by Satan? Are you worse and worse? Are you more and more irritable with your neighbors or uncharitable at church? Have you given up on the world? Those nasty people. There's a bunch of nasty people. No, I'm reformed. I, I like my reformed ghetto. Now, the rest of the world, you know, I don't care. I don't care if they're going to hell. You have little concern for the things of eternity in your neighbor. Little concern for Christ's kingdom. You don't really give yourself as sacrificial servants, consecrated fully to the Lord's glory in his visible church. Oh, you've got some attendance going here in the church. After all, you're not really Presbyterian, are you? Now, these, man, now this Westminster stuff. There's only one church. Give yourself to that church. Fully. There's plenty of work to do. Who is it that overcomes the world but him who believes that Jesus is the Lord Christ? If you have the right faith, you will overcome all these things and more. Let me resolve this with a conclusion. Jesus teaches his disciples that at the end of this age will feature great trials so that many will be deceived and fall away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But he who perseveres with Christ at the end, that one will be saved. My friends, you will need supernatural resurrection strength in order to even start the Christian life, much less to endure. It is not to him who wills, nor to him who runs, but to God who has mercy. If you've cried out to him for his mercy to you in Christ, forgiving your sins, 
pleading that he give you his Holy Spirit, pleading that by your spirit you can mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, question, uh, shorter catechism 85, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and the curse of God due to our sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefit of redemption. Jesus endured, my friend, every trial, every temptation, and he has triumphed, not only for his soul's sake as a man, but as a public person and the head of a new covenant for your sake. This is why you will triumph, because he has already triumphed, and he leads every one of us triumphantly. He leads all of his church elect. And you will see this by and by, and you will see it perfectly as we look back from heaven. But even today, you will begin to experience this. And this is what we call experiential religion. Oh yes, it's subjective because it's invisible. But spiritual things, my friends, are no less real because they're invisible. Spiritual things actually are the things that support the visible things. Spiritual things, invisible things, are the foundation of reality and material objective things. And so Jesus will help you and you will begin to triumph and you will begin to experience that however imperfectly in this life. And that's God's will for you. And God gets glory. And you give God worship when you know and are experiencing a measure, not fullness, but some degree of victory against trial and temptation in your perseverance and love and faith to the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you mark us from our baptism to be yours entirely. We pray that we might understand your sign and your seal. And we pray that, Lord, that you would put much oil in our lamp, that we be boasting in you and in the covenant of grace and in our head, Christ, and place no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. We pray that you would get the glory for it in your church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, this time forth, now, and forever. Hear us, O Lord, through Jesus. Amen. Let's have an offering, please.